Okay, it's on. All right, everybody. Well, I think we're going to go ahead and get get started this morning. Uh, we are moving through our elder affirmation of faith, and before before we start the old slideshow and discussion, I want to pray for us and uh, ask for God's help for our time together. Father, we love you, and it is such a privilege as your people to gather and to open your word. Uh, we, we thank you for Jesus, who has brought us to you, who has bore our sin in his body on the cross, who has, by his sacrifice, averted your wrath, absorbed it. We're thankful for his resurrection by it being justified. So we, we are a gospel people. We are thankful. We have hope. And now as we consider uh, even historical theology, we, we pray that you would help us again to be enamored by what you say about Jesus and his work. Uh, we, we agree with the psalmist. Help us to feel it again Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. We praise you for that great reality. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, we are continuing, as I said, in our core doctrine series. And uh, this morning I drew the historical theology straw. So when we get to the Q&A, y'all be very gentle uh, with me. I'm, I'm, I'm dusting off the historical theology books probably like most of us. Um, next week, we will have uh, Practical Theology, and we are in Article 7, The Saving Work of Christ. I taught Foundations last week, so I wasn't in here. I expect that Pastor Jordan walked through the biblical theology of this. Um, so this morning, we're going to consider uh, the historical theology behind Article 7, The Saving Work of Christ. I'm going to go ahead and read these articles in their entirety to stir us up and to uh, help us as we consider so Article 7.1 should be there on the screen. We believe that by his perfect obedience to God and by his suffering and death as the immaculate Lamb of God, Jesus Christ obtained forgiveness of sins and the gift of perfect righteousness for all who trusted in God prior to the cross and all who would trust in Christ thereafter. Through living a perfect life and dying in our place, the just for the unjust... Christ absorbed our punishment, appeased the wrath of God against us, vindicated the righteousness of God in our justification, and removed the condemnation of the law against us. 7.2. We believe that the atonement of Christ for sin warrants and impels a universal offering of the gospel to all persons so that to every person it may be truly said, God gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. Whosoever will may come for cleansing at this fountain and whoever does come, Jesus will not cast out. 7.3, we believe moreover that the death of Christ did obtain more than the bona fide offer of the gospel for all. It also obtained the omnipotent new covenant mercy of repentance and faith for God's elect. Christ died for all, but not for all in the same way. In his death, Christ expressed a special covenant love to his friends, his sheep, his bride. For them, he obtained the infallible and effectual working of the Spirit to triumph 
over their resistance and bring them to saving faith. So that's the article. This morning we will consider together really four, four points in insufficient, and then there's four points in sufficient. These are insufficient historical perspectives on the saving work of Christ. So there'll be a lot of, lot of reading, but we'll take these one, one by one off for comment as we go, if it works. So we have four, the ransom theory, the moral influence theory, the example theory, and the governmental theory. If any of you have Wayne Grudem systematic theology, this comes straight from uh, that book. Uh, not, not they're, they're found in other places, but the, the way that we will look at them today comes straight from that if you want to do some additional digging. So we'll look at the first one, the ransom theory, first, <clears throat> explain, and then maybe a few comments. So this comes straight from Grudem, page 581. This theory thinks of Satan rather than God as the one who required that a payment be made for sin and thus completely neglects the demands of God's justice with respect to sin. It views Satan as having much more power than he actually does, namely power to demand whatever he wants from God rather than as one who has been cast down from heaven and has no right to demand anything from God. Let me go back there. Didn't mean to click that. So number one, we're thinking about the, the ransom theory, reading that, that slide. So we have this Satan uh, gets paid a ransom, and uh, this started way back in the day, but what this theory doesn't take into consideration, it doesn't teach that, it, Scripture doesn't teach that we owe anything to Satan. There's, there's no biblical precedent for that when we consider this theory. God does require payment for sin, uh, but we don't owe anything to Satan. This view also fails to deal with texts that speak of Christ's death as an offering to God, an offering to God, again, in the ransom theory, to Satan. But it fails to deal with those texts, like Ephesians 5.2. I don't have it on the slide, but listen to the verse. And walk in love... Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So as we consider uh, an insufficient historical perspective on the saving work of Christ, the ransom theory is one that, uh, that we find in history. The second is the moral influence theory. Okay, so I'm going to read this. You can see it on your screen, also taken from Grudem's Systemat. This theory purports that God did not require the payment of a penalty for sin, but that Christ's death was simply a way in which God showed how much he loved human beings by identifying with their sufferings, even to the point of death. So Christ's death, therefore, becomes a great teaching example that shows God's love to us and draws from us a grateful response so that in loving him, we are forgiven. Well, even just on the surface, if we consider this theory, it really runs in contrast to all the passages in Scripture. We're going to get to some of those here in a moment that speak of Christ dying for sin, bearing our sin, and Christ appeasing God's wrath. We just have an example here. It, it doesn't deal with our guilt. 
Uh, Grudem says later, I don't have this quoted on there, it holds that the atonement had no effect on God himself. In some of these teachings that we'll see, these four, uh, if you just read it, not in its wider context, it's like, oh, some of that does sound good. Some of that does. There is an example. We do have an example in Christ, but it doesn't, it doesn't speak to the fullness of the atonement. It leaves so much to be desired. So that's the moral influence theory. We've got three, two more. Put your thinking caps on. The example theory. Okay, the example theory was an Italian theologian, Faustus Socinus, I think is how you would say it. Someone can fix me. But in the 1500s, this guy came up with this theory. I'll read the slide. You can see it behind me. Like the moral influence theory, okay, very similar, the example theory also denies that God's justice requires payment for our sin. It says that Christ's death simply provides us with an example of how we should trust and obey God perfectly, even if that trust and obedience leads to a horrible death. Whereas the moral example theory teaches us how much God loves us, the example theory teaches us how we should live. As I said, like some of these Theories, facets of them seem to be true. Christ is certainly a plumb line, an example for us. We're walking through the book of John, and we've been in John 13, and we see that his humility is certainly an example for us. But it's not a complete exploration of the atonement. It doesn't take into account what we've already said. The passages in Scripture about Christ dying for sin, about there being a penalty for sin, it, it, it doesn't show us or tell us how guilt can be removed. And finally, you can see in a very real way with this theory, it's a man-centered work-based salvation, right? As long as we can trust and obey like Christ did, we'll be okay. But who can do that? Who can do that? We need Christ because he did do that. We can't do that in and of ourselves. So, That's the example theory when we think about historical perspectives that are insufficient. And then finally, the last one, uh, the governmental theory. This theory, you'll see it as I read it, why it's called such, holds that God did not actually have to require payment for sin. So our flag should go up already. Hopefully they have with all of these. But since since he was omnipotent God... He could have set aside, that should say aside, that requirement and simply forgive sins without the payment of a penalty. Then what was the purpose of Christ's death, Grudem says? It was God's demonstration of the fact that his laws had been broken, that he is the moral lawgiver and governor of the universe, and that some kind of penalty would be required whenever his laws were broken. Thus, Christ did not exactly pay the penalty for the actual sins of any people but simply suffered to show that when God's laws are broken, there must be some penalty paid. Again, hopefully the the flags have gone up. Uh, This theory uh, tells us that Christ is not actually making a payment for our sin. There's no penalty for our sin according to this theory. Forgiveness happens outside the cross. God just, he can do it. He can just Forgive outside the cross, and we know, and we'll see in a minute, that 
mercy and justice. There can't be one without the other. So like all these theories, God's justice is minimized. Hopefully you've picked up on that. The character of God is minimized, his, his justice. Now as we think about faithful historical perspectives on the saving work of Christ, these are four points that we will make. Propitiation and expiation, again we're talking about faithful historical perspectives. Jesus' Godward sacrifice, divine wrath absorbed, and Christ paid in full. So just a few comments on each one. Expiation and propitiation, big words. Faithful historical perspective on the saving work of Christ. This this quote is from R.C. Sproul, Ligonier Journal, April of 2020. There is a slight difference in the terms. Expiation is the act that results in the change of God's disposition towards us. It is what Christ did on the cross, and the result of Christ's work of expiation is propitiation. God's anger is turned away. The distinction is the same as that between the ransom that is paid and the attitude of the one who receives the ransom. Okay, so big words, ex, out of, expiation, from. So if we take it biblically, taking away guilt through a payment. So we think about expiation, taking away guilt through a payment. Okay, we have the gospel. Propitiation, pro or for, God being appeased. It's the averting of his wrath by the offering. By the offering. See, there's two big words that are important, and they're missing from all those other theories when you drill down into those theories, because what's missing is the character of God, his holiness, wrath, So propitiation brings a change in God's disposition towards us from enmity to friendship and fellowship. He's for us because of Christ's work on the cross. Through propitiation, we are restored to God. So I'll read it again. There's a slight difference in the terms. Expiation is the act that results in the change of God's disposition toward us. Amen. It is what Christ did on the cross. And the result of Christ's work of expiation is propitiation. God's anger is turned away. The distinction is the same as that between the ransom that is paid and the attitude of the one who receives the ransom. So we could say much more about that. Maybe we will before we have time, before we close. But let's look at Jesus' Godward sacrifice. Again, faithful historical perspectives on the saving work of Christ. Okay, some passages. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice, we read this earlier, to God, to God, as a fragrant aroma. Another passage, Hebrews 9, 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And then in Luke 23, verse 46, and Jesus crying out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So Jesus's God-word sacrifice, as we think about faithful historical perspectives, We said already, 
God's wrath is real because God's holiness is real. God is reality. And so there's a penalty for sin. His wrath is against us. We're separated from God. We're in bondage to sin. God's holiness must be vindicated. His righteousness is at stake. Christ satisfies his wrath. Propitiation, we just talked about that. Jesus' God word sacrifice. Romans 3, God put Christ forward as an offering, not us. We didn't put him forward. God put him forward as a sacrifice. Romans 3, 25. Okay, the next point as we look at faithful historical perspectives, divine wrath absorbed. Very much missing in the four that we spoke about. Again, because God's holiness appears to be missing in those theories. Grudem, page 577, says this, If we ask, who required Christ to pay the penalty for our sins? The answer given by Scripture is that the penalty was inflicted by God the Father as he represented the interests of the Trinity in redemption. It was God's justice that required that sin be paid for. And among the members of the Trinity, it was God the Father whose role was to require payment. A few verses to stir us up. Isaiah 53, 6. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Isaiah 53.10, really the whole chapter, but this speaks to that divine wrath being absorbed. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. 1 John 4 is another passage. It's not on this list here, but just listen to it. It's familiar. 1 John 4, 9 through 10, as we think about Christ absorbing God's wrath on the cross. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, right, wrath appeased, wrath absorbed, fragrant aroma, sacrifice accepted for our sin. So Jesus, in the gospel, his saving work, he absorbs God's wrath. And then finally, I'll just read this passage, Christ paid in full, Christ paid in full, Hebrews 10, verses 11 through 14. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified." Well, before we have some time to, to talk about it, let me just make a, a few notes. I do have a long quote that I want to read that's not on here that kind of sums up what we're talking about. It, it's on Hebrews 2, which the, the verse is, therefore he had to be made like his brethren in every respect 
so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Okay, so that's, that's the verse. Kent Hughes, some of you know him. He was a pastor at Wheaton, some commentaries. It's a long quote, but I think it sums up what we're thinking about this morning. And it shows what's wrong with those other theories that we just read about. He says, when people sin, they arouse the wrath of God. Romans 1.18, and become enemies of God, Romans 5.10. The old, let me get it here. The old and new testaments reveal an utterly holy God whose holy nature demands wrath against all sin. Wrath is the reverse side of his holiness. God cannot set aside his wrath toward our sin and remain holy which would certainly go against uh, several of those theories. This is where the propitiating love of God comes in. To obtain our salvation for us, God himself met the demands of his holiness in Christ, which because of the oneness of the Trinity means he met the demands of his holiness himself. He has, in a manner of speaking, propitiated himself in our place. Thus we see that God, through Christ, our priestly propitiator, has done everything for us. Paul speaks of this in Romans 3, 24, 25 that I alluded to earlier, where he describes believers as being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood. Let me get back here. So I think we have about nine minutes left. So that's, we're, we're thinking about uh, not faithful historical perspectives and faithful historical perspectives. As I said earlier, I'm dusting off the historical theology books. So y'all, I told Derek before we started, y'all take it easy on me. But I do wonder too, as a way to, to stir us up, perhaps there's questions or just thoughts. Um, across this room, there's no doubt you're swimming in verses, meditating on verses, memorizing verses. I wonder, too, as a way to stir us up, if there's something uh, scripturally that you've been in that, that would not necessarily fit the categories, but just, can, just help put the uh, highlight and the uh, exclamation point on several of these faithful historical perspectives. We, we've had a lot of verses that speak to those, but if you had some that you'd say, this is where I'm at, listen to this, Jesus' Godward sacrifice, it certainly would encourage all of us. And if there's nothing, we can sing and uh, fellowship before service, but I'll stop talking. Questions, thoughts, stir us up. What a Savior. I already I'll have the I already have the mic, so I'll say yeah. something. I'll say one. Yeah, go ahead, brother. You, you, you can say your thing first. Oh, wait. No, no, go ahead. Wait, I was going to say, uh, I've always heard the ransom theory is wrong, but it's always been weird to me that Bible, the Bible uses the word ransom. And so it was interesting to see, like, the, the reason the ransom theory is wrong is because it's who it's paying off, right? It's paying Satan off rather than God. And that was kind of helpful because Matthew 20, 28, I looked it up. I don't know that from heart, but it says that Christ said himself that he, the son of man came to be a ransom for many. 
And that word ransom is the word ransom, but it means yeah. I'm paying God off, not Satan. That's yeah. helpful. That's good. Yeah, I think one, one of the things that was helpful for me, again, in being a learner like we all are, uh, you know, his, his, history doesn't, doesn't stop here, right? It's going to go forward too, but there's things that happened a long time ago where if you're just one click, two clicks, you've heard Jordan say that, off. I mean, you just got all these different ways that people are taking the saving work of Christ. So just as a general, thinking about those four, there's probably more, uh, has been helpful to see how, you know, one click off of the gospel and you're just like, Jesus paid Satan, you know, and it's just like you got all this movement that way. So um, that's why it's helpful for us to, to do what Ben just did. Yes, brother. I think a, a practical application to how do we apply historical theology, especially as it relates to the ransom theory, just one practical example. When you read The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe with your children, um, it might be helpful as they become older to articulate to them that that is not the way the Bible teaches the payment of Jesus for sins, that obviously C.S. Lewis did not believe in the uh, the double uh, the, uh, the 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 penal double penal substitutionary atonement, the the big fancy way of saying Jesus paid for our sins. He believed in the ransom theory, and so you see in the in the the book that Aslan is paying a ransom for the child to the queen, and so. Um, just maybe a practical example of here's how you apply what you just learned and grow. Um, and now you have a grid to read that through. Yeah, I remember when I read it, the same thing. What's he saying? Anybody else? Okay, well, uh, we have a few minutes. Let's, let's close with the doxology. And Yeah, 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 please, brother. So the middle schoolers are, I think they're back there. What would you say to a 12 or 13-year-old who says, did Jesus have to die in order for sins to be forgiven, right? So the government theory, like, God is God, right? So he can do whatever he wants. So... He can just forgive us. So what would you say to a kid who says, can he just be God and just forgive us? That's what? It's for anybody, not just yeah. necessarily yeah. you. I'll let, I'll let others go. If, uh... I'm, not, I'm, I'm just letting everybody jump in. Uh, explaining why God can't just forgive us is there are some things God can't do. He cannot deny himself. And because he is just, uh, he cannot go against his nature. The divine nature is just. Just like our nature in Adam is sinful, and we cannot perform righteous acts. So God cannot be unjust. So he cannot just set aside 
is justice in favor of mercy. I think we already mentioned that. Yeah, to, to continue from what Charles is saying, assumed into the, the question, um, again, it's a 12-year-old, right? Uh, but assumed into the question is this kind of really old dialogue in Socrates even where he says, okay, is something good because God did it or did God do it because it's good, right? So is there something above God that makes God behave the way that he does? Is, is he responsible to something higher than himself? Um, so is goodness up here and God has to obey goodness or is God up here and it's only good because God said it, right? So that, that's the, the tension there. Uh, and what Charles said is 100% true. Um, you, you can't separate a thing from its nature because God is good. This is the way in which he behaves. Um, because God is just, this is the way in which he behaves that to try to separate those two things is actually a contradiction in terms. Um, so in responding to the 12-year-old, um, we would just say that this is who God is. Nothing outside of himself is forcing him to be a certain way, but it is his nature to be just. It is his nature to be good, and the Lord of the earth will always do right. Um, so, uh, and the way that my heart rests with that question is to tie that question to today's passage. A man, presumably, a man said, I am the way and no one comes to the Father but me. And then he was crucified, publicly dead, placed into the ground. And then three days later, God, the one that we're trying to understand, from outside of the natural world, reaches down and raises him back up as if to verify everything that he said about himself. So how do we know that we aren't imposing upon God this demand that we're saying that God just can't forgive us? Because Jesus said, if you don't come through me, you don't come at all. And then we killed him, and then God raised him back up to vindicate every word from his mouth. So it's the resurrection that gives us the confidence that Jesus is the payment for sins and that there's no way to come to God apart from that. That's how we know. We know because Jesus rose from the dead, and thereby God stamped everything he said as approved from the God of the universe. Thankful for historical theology. Oh, yeah, brother, please. Oh, sorry, Dave. Yeah. A quick comment. Um, I think when we talk about God's salvific work, you know, what we were talking about is like the personal and... Um, I was just skimming through the elder's affirmation of faith just to see if there was anything um, outside of that. Because um, w one thing that I've been meditating on is just, I, I don't think it's truncated to just um, 
personal salvation. And you might look at a passage like Romans 8 where um, it says that creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption. That sounds like salvation, to be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God and that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. So it, um, I think it extends to, you know, every aspect of creation, Jesus's work, just, just for consideration. Yeah, I've been uh, thinking about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, and so I'll, I'll just say it and let the Lord do what he wants to do. Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand by which you are being saved, if you hold fast the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried. That he was raised on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. He died, he was buried, and as our brother said, he, he rose from the dead. He's vindicated. Yeah. Amen.